you have your Bibles with you this morning, or your favorite app, we'll be in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11. It's the first of the Gospels that you find in the New Testament. Uh, We are continuing, if I can connect us, I know I was off last week. Um, I hope you enjoyed Dr. Van Nest and the sermon and the message he had for you last week. Uh, We're connecting back to where we started in the month of December with stuff. You know, what, what does it mean for us to be a church who has stuff? And what does it mean to leverage this stuff for God's kingdom and glory? I mean, we don't know anything about stuff in December, do we? We see stuff everywhere, and we buy lots of stuff. Hopefully you found your spot. Would you please stand for the read, reading of Christ's Word this morning? May you hear the Word of Christ. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you have heard and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed among the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to see into the wilderness? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then, are you? who did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, and I will prepare the way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning of of gathering during this Advent season, a season of hope and expectation, a season of rejoicing and a proclamation that your King has indeed come. And so as you have given your word this morning, I'm reminded of Psalm 147. It is spread around like snow and it is scattered among us like ashes. And so, Father, may you continue to breathe life in and through our own hearts and minds and bodies as we continue to be expectant that a word has been set aside for this day for your church and your people. We offer these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me start this morning with a quick reference. Um, I think I can use this movie, Disney movie, in order to connect with just about every single person here. Robin Hood. Remember the 1974 version? The fox that is Robin. Then you have Maid Marian. And then you have the king Uh, who's represented as a lion. Remember that one? Well, that Robin Hood, as in any other Robin Hood, you have King Richard who has either been taken captive or killed in the Crusades. But then you have this other character who rises up to power, 
Prince John, and he has taken on his role of King Richard as this interim king of sorts. But here's the thing about Prince John. He begins taxing all of Nottingham and the surrounding villages very heavily to the point where people are now starving. They're without work. They are desperate, and many of them are dying. Robin Hood enters the scene of this particular Disney cartoon in order to steal from the oppressive richness of, of Prince John to give back to the poor who have been unjustly wronged. Now, near the end of this Disney film, if I can carry you on towards the end, you have this scene where Prince John has been publicly exposed as this unjust ruler, this unjust king, yet he's still reigning as this interim king. In order for uh, the people to keep their place and to remember where their place is in Nottingham and the surrounding villages, taxes are even more heavily thrown on to the people. And an even greater hopelessness and an even greater distress begins to hit the people of Nottingham. And in one of the final scenes in the movie, there's Friar Tuck. Remember him? And then you have also the church mouse. And they're there in the cathedral and they're ringing the bell on this very cold, very rainy night. And the ringing of the bell is meant to ring throughout the community and the villages in order to tell the people, now come and let us worship. But what happens is that nobody shows up. And then you have this conversation between Friar Tuck and the church mouse. The church mouse says this, No one's coming. Do you think maybe we should stop, as in stop ringing the bell? Friar Tuck responds to the church mouse, Maybe the sound of this church bell will bring hope and comfort to the people. Even though they're not showing up, this bell that rings will bring hope and comfort to the people who can hear it. Church, I'm convinced that John the Baptist was this kind of ringing bell in his day. To the community of Israel when Rome had occupied their land, taxing them heavenly and haunting them with hopelessness. They'd never have their own king, they thought. They never thought for one second that a king whose rule would be just and righteous and that rules Rome would be pushed up. And here you have John the Baptist ringing like that church bell from Robin Hood in the midst of the wilderness to a people imagining and longing for comfort and hope and joy. He's a ringing bell for the king who was coming. Let that ring in your head as we work through Matthew 11 this morning. Let's look at verses 2 through 3. Let me remind you of that, those, past, or those verses. When John, who was in prison, heard the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Notice the confusion and reservation about John in these verses. This is John who asks, Are you the one who is to come? This is a message sent through his disciples. John's in prison, sent, to, uh, sent his disciples to Jesus. Are you really the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? This is the same John 
at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel who says this, pointing to Jesus, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You almost have two completely different Johns, don't you? A one who says, Look, this is the one, the righteous King who's come. Now you have Him sending messengers. Are you really the one who we expected all along? But I don't think we can shame or even fault John for asking that question, are you the one who is to come? Because it's an honest and very authentic question that you find here captured in Matthew 11. But I think it's also more than that. According to the Hebrew mindset in that day, as the Israelites were expecting this king to come, he would establish a rule and a reign that Yahweh God would come to earth, visit the Israelites, and He would bring about this greatest justice and this greatest kingdom that could ever be imagined. So John's question implies really a bigger question, or really two bigger questions. The first one is, will you now bring forth God's justice? Talking to Jesus, will you now bring forth God's justice? Or uh, will you now establish God's peace? Because the Israelites looking around them are seeing death. They're seeing people being oppressed. They're seeing that there's a hopelessness. And so they have in their mindset that there is no king who's coming. That God has forgotten His people. And so when John asked that question, he's really asking, are you about to establish and inaugurate God's true peace and justice? If we look at Jesus' reply in verses 4-6, through six, He says this, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you have heard and what you see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of Me. Jesus in His reply is actually quoting several passages that you find scattered throughout Isaiah. Isaiah 26, 29, 35, 42, 61. And he's trying to convince John the Baptist and those around him what is actually going on in the life and the ministry of this Jesus, this quoted Messiah. Jesus healed blind men. If you look back in Matthew in, verse, in uh, chapter 9, he cured a lame man also in chapter 9. A leper was cleansed in chapter 8 of Matthew. Then you have a deaf man who regains his hearing in chapter 9. And even accounts for a resurrection in chapter 9. And in uh, chapters 4, 5, 9, and 10, you have a preaching of the gospel to the poor. So I think here's the answer that Jesus is giving to John. Yes, John, I am who I said I am. I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the Lord, the one who has been expected and longed for. But notice in this passage that we never find out John's response. Jesus sends John's disciples back to him to deliver this message, yet we get nothing. No response out of John. We don't even know what happens beyond the fact that Jesus sends this message back to John. In fact, we don't hear anything about John the Baptist until three chapters later in Matthew 14. 
when he is actually beheaded by Herod, who would have been this governor uh, in this area around Judea at the time. Which goes back to John's question, are you the one who is establishing God's justice? Are you the one who is going to establish God's peace in our land? In other words, will you, here's a very personal question from John, will you get me out of prison? Will you dispose of Herod's unjust and unlawful rule? And will you establish your, yourself as the true and just king that Israel has longed for for hundreds of years? At the end of the day, John is, he's worried about himself. He's worried about his fate. He's invested all his time and energy into this Messiah King who he thinks possibly could be the one that all of Israel has longed for. But what's changed? What's changed between the John who points to Jesus early on in his ministry and says, Behold, this is the Lamb who will be slain, to this John who's in prison who says, Are you really who you said you were? One thing's very obvious. Did you catch where he is at this time? He's in prison. His situation has certainly changed. Whereas he's starting out in the wilderness preaching about this one who is to come, now he's set in prison and he doesn't know really what's going to happen to him in the fate in the coming days. He's yelling from the wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God, and it's a momentous, it's a powerful time and event in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then you have this mountaintop experience that John is experiencing for the first few chapters of Matthew. Then there's a transition. Are you the one who is to come? He's in a cold, likely dark cell here in prison, probably very likely awaiting his death, or at least it's the expectation that he might have. So where he was in a mountaintop at the beginning, he's now in a valley, not certain what holds his future. And I think we can understand John's predicament, can't we? That one day we are shouting from the rooftops of who Jesus is. Been there? Come back from a camp, teenagers? Come back from some sort of uh, uh, R&R church where you have truly been invested in and you have been able to experience the Spirit of Christ in profound ways and you come back from those times and you are, in a way, on a mountaintop. But what happens we meet life, don't we? And just like anybody's life, we have mountaintops and we also have valleys. And what we have here in John's own experiences, he understood that this was not a good situation. Dark, cold prison thrown in there by Herod himself. What's going to happen? So here's my point, church. The difficulties in our lives can blind us from seeing Jesus in the mess of our circumstances. Let me read it one more time. The difficulties in our lives can blind us from seeing Jesus in the mess of our circumstances. Yet, we must not look for Jesus through our difficulties, but the other way around. 
We are to see our situations, our circumstances, the difficulties from the eyes of Jesus. It's a mindset that's far different. The first, where we look for Jesus through our difficulties, that focuses on our situation. The second, when we look at our situation through the eyes of Jesus, that gives us focus of our situation and a focus for a situation. If there's a profound reality that we find in Advent and Christmas time, it's this joyful truth right here. Jesus has entered into the messes of our lives in order to reveal His goodness, His holiness, and the love of the Father. He did not enter into our messes to show our goodness. He didn't enter into our messes to show any of our holiness or love, but rather the Father's love, the Father's holiness and His goodness. Look with me now at verse uh, 7 through 10 of Matthew 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you and will prepare a way before you. There's a turn in the story here in verse 7. After John's disciples had given a report uh, of John's own concerns, the crowd might have even had their own doubts and concerns. If, if, if John is asking and he's unsure about this Messiah King, well, you can probably bet that the crowds themselves also have this questioning as well. Are you really the king who we are to expect and is the one to come? He asked those in the crowd these types of questions. Why did you listen to John? To have your ears tickled? That's a modern translation. To see an oddly dressed man? You definitely found that. Uh, or to witness God's very own prophet in the flesh. Yes. But Jesus says He's more than God's own prophet in the flesh. Jesus quotes a passage from Malachi in order for His listeners to understand, I will send My messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. It was very common in Jesus' day uh, when they quoted some small verse of Scripture they actually had the whole of it in mind. So the, the small verse or two was actually getting the Hebrews to think bigger beyond that just small passage that was quoted. And so when Jesus actually quotes Malachi right here, He's got the fuller passage of Malachi 3 in mind. And it greatly helps not only His listeners to understand, but us too. So I want to quote that passage for you in Matthew, Malachi 3. But who can adore the day of His coming, the coming of the King? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness 
and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days that have gone by as in former years. Malachi continues, So I will come to put you on trial. This is God speaking through Malachi to the people of Israel. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. In the larger passage, Malachi seems to bring up not only the messenger who was to come, but also the announcement, here it is church, that the Lord is coming near. But he also makes clear that when this happens, when the Lord comes near to His people, get ready, because something's big about to happen. In verses 2-4 through of Malachi, the Lord comes near to refine and to cleanse the priest or the religious in their day. Then He will help others offer righteous offerings of praise, worship, where they will be acceptable to the Lord Himself. And then if you find in Malachi 3, verse 5, you have this warning of God to the people of Israel that those who practice false worship, those who abuse their marriages and even the court system, those who are cruel employers, those who oppress and overlook widows and the fatherless, and those who don't take care of the marginalized and the foreigners among them, be ready for sure when the Lord shows up. Church, I hope you're listening because Jesus is telling the crowds in His day that the specific messenger that Malachi said would come to prepare the way for the Lord, well, that messenger is John the Baptist. Which means Jesus' next point is even more powerful. If John was the messenger who would prepare the way, who is the Lord who's come near? Christ Himself. He is the King. He is the Emmanuel. He is the true Son of David. He is the Prince of Princes. And He is the King of Kings. So Jesus isn't just affirming John's ministry and preparing the way. He's also confirming the identity of Himself as Lord in the very flesh. The one who refines the religious and the non-religious. The one who guides His people into true worship. This same king who shows up and he teaches his followers to practice righteousness. How? By serving their spouses in marriage. How else? To live justly in and outside the court system. Well, what else does this king do? He helps us deal honestly and compassionately for employers and employees. He also teaches us how to care for the unborn, the orphan, the widow. And he also does so by loving the foreigner and the forgotten among us. That's what happens when the just and righteous king comes to dwell with his people. When the king comes near, righteousness has come into our midst. Justice has come into our midst. Holiness has come into our midst. One final verse this morning, verse 11. Of Matthew 11. Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, among the born, those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom 
that is him who is greater. Of the months and years of following Jesus, I'm sure you probably noticed that Jesus' kingdom is pretty upside down in a lot of ways. The humble, not the proud, will be the kingdom people. The poor, not the rich, will inherit his kingdom. The last, not the first, will enter his kingdom. The forgotten, not the noticeable, will be seen. The weepers, not the joyous, will be comforted. And here in this passage you find in verse 11, the least, not the greatest, will be kingdom bearers. Jesus' kingdom is completely upside down of the expectation that society and culture might have had, not only in His day, but in our day as well. His kingdom truly is upside down. And if you want to be great in His kingdom, you must become least of all. Jod understood Jesus' kingdom well. Because remember what he said shortly after Jesus begins this ministry? He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Remember that when John says this about John, uh, Jesus? Friends, how do you view your own ministry? Your daily and weekly ministry to others? How do you serve others? What is your particular calling as Jesus' own disciple? Do you consider yourself last or first? Do you bend down to serve or do you glance down upon others expecting to be served? When we live like we're last and when we stoop down to serve, we're demonstrating our citizenship in Jesus' kingdom. That's what we're doing. And we're in essence, here it is, practicing the kingdom here on earth. So what does this mean as it relates to stuff? Remember what I said about John's prison experience and how those circumstances prevented him from seeing who, who Christ truly was? And we've also pointed out how we run into the same predicaments even today. That we can see our situations and our circumstance and the events of our lives, they can veil our eyes from truly seeing Jesus. Well, I'm convinced that stuff has the same effects on us during Advent. That stuff, those presents, the gifts, the items, the busyness that happens in December, that has this tendency of all of these things to prevent and obstruct our eyes from seeing and celebrating the God who has indeed come near. Not only are our eyes captivated by the deals and clearances of stuff that we all succumb to, but our hearts are easily entangled and ensnared in all of the stuff of the Christmas season. As we noted earlier, we never find out how John the Baptist responds to the message that Jesus sends back through John's disciples. Yet we do know that he receives the message while in prison. It is delivered back to him. And in that prison cell, the message likely continues to ring over and over in his head every single day until his death. Here's that message. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed among the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
I can hear that ring in John's head. Blessed is everyone who does not stumble upon me. And it just continued to probably ring every single day in his head. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Because Jesus saw that John was in this moment of stumbling. So what you have here is that Jesus is delivering a message to keep your eyes on Him. Remember what I did with the deaf, the blind, the crippled, the lame, the dead? Keep your eyes on that ministry. Do not stumble knowing these circumstances and situations that are here in the midst of your life. And I also think that Jesus is delivering a similar message to us this Advent. That if you're stumbling, Jesus has stooped low to remind you and I who He is, to assure you of His abiding presence, even in our own little prisons. And like John, He delivers such a message in order to readjust our vision and to recalibrate our hearts to be in awe of the reality that God has come near to restore and redeem His people. And so let's return where we started this morning. John was that ringing bell for those in his day. The ones who were hopeless, restless, and filled with multiple burdens, he heralded the King who was coming. Church, our ministry isn't much different, except our bell rings now about the King who has come. And we continue to ring that bell, and hopefully it carries over into our communities, and it's so resounding and loud that the King has come. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your ministry, that You have served us, You have stooped low by taking on human flesh in order to remind us that Your righteousness is worthy of all of our lives. That we are to be a people who are to cast our hopelessness on You that You are the one who takes up our restlessness in order to give us rest. And so as a people who are celebrating and commemorating and remembering Advent, that word Advent, that reminder that You have made Your presence ever so clear. And so may we continue just to chew and meditate on that, that You, Christ, have come near to us but you haven't just come near in order to leave, but you have come near in order to abide with us through your Spirit. And so, Father, as we continue to lean into your Son's ministry, may you continue to send your Spirit to build in us a ministry that is identical or it mimics and it resounds of the kingdom of your Son. And so as we continue uh, commemorating and remembering this time in which Jesus has been gifted to us. Lord, may we continue to tell and to herald not only with our lips that the Christ, the King, has come, but may we herald it with our lives as well. And so, Lord, speak to us. Minister to us. May you continue to be a presence among us so that we can share that this good news 
of righteousness and joy and peace has come. And may we spread the wealth of that goodness around. Lord, we offer these things in the name of your Son and your King. Amen.